Happy Mother's Day. Called my mom this morning. She's in Vegas. Sinner. Can you do me a favor? Greet somebody near to you. We did this last week. Like they were a friend that you haven't seen in a long time or it's your favorite aunt and you just have 10 seconds to do this. Okay, save the love fest for later. Okay, here we go. Perfect, perfect, perfect Mother's Day message today. Amos chapter 7. If you're new with us at this church, we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and really don't sway from that really unless it's like Christmas and Easter, but all the other 50 weeks, pretty much expository teaching through here. So Amos chapter 7, if you're a mom, probably glad not to hear another mom's message or something. You've probably gone through a few of them and how many aspects of Mary can you go through, right, or whatever. And so here we are, Amos chapter 7, and we're just going to do the first half of it, verses 1 through 9. Now, we've all heard this phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? We kind of all get this. In chapter 7 of Amos, God gave Amos three pictures, And they're all preceded by this phrase. This is what the Lord God showed me. He showed me. And those pictures can be found in verses 1, 4, and 7. And so what will these pictures show us? Well, even the words describing the pictures are really, really loaded words. So I'm going to throw these words out to you. And even these words have a thousand words to describe them. For example... These pictures will show us God's sovereignty. And so when you think of sovereignty, that's a big word. And in Amos, God is referred to as Lord God, or Adonai Yehovah in Hebrew. And ten times in the first six chapters, this title for God is used. And the title Lord God is not just a title of reverence. It is a title that speaks to God's sovereignty. His reign, his dominion, his authority, a really, really loaded word. And Amos used this title quite liberally in the first six chapters, right? Ten times. But now check this out in verse 7. In just the first eight verses, God is referred to as Lord God six times. Just in these verses. And Adonai eight times. So obviously, Amos is upping the sovereignty factor, upping the authority, dominion factor of God a few notches in this chapter. Now, another loaded word that these pictures conjure up is the word refuge. The refuge of God who provides to those who are His. He gives them security in the face of tragedy. And you get that in these pictures. Now, this third loaded word that accompanies Amos's pictures here is prayer. Prayer. So we have sovereignty, we have refuge, we have prayer. Prayer is a hugely loaded word. If you think about the volumes upon volumes upon volumes of books that have been written about all of these loaded words, sovereignty, refuge, prayer. So as we go through these pictures, keep those three words in mind because it kind of goes through all three of these pictures. 
verses 1 through 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. A picture of locusts. This past week, I got the opportunity to chaperone my second grader's field trip to the Lawrence Hall of Science. And this exhibit that is there right now is called Extreme Bugs. So awesome. It goes through September 1st. They had an exhibit there, and locusts was one of those extreme bugs. And just a side note, I love chaperoning my daughter's class field trips. They always give me the naughtiest kids. Always. But those are actually the ones I prefer anyway, because I like messing with their mind. But anyway, so Extreme Bugs is the exhibit. And so a swarm of locusts, you have to kind of put on this different hat, to an agrarian society. That is horrifying. And so you and I, we're not familiar with this horrifying picture because we're in the Bay Area, the financial hub of the West Coast. We're in the heart of the technology world. We're in one of the top biotech centers of the world, so we're a little bit removed from agriculture. Even though farming and gardening, they are huge hobbies in urban areas, and, and many of us are interested in these things in the Bay Area, some of us are more familiar with this context because we're concerned and we're involved with agricultural issues and food justice. So this might be a little bit more familiar to you, but even if we are part of a CSA and we eat organic and we visit farms from where our food comes from because we believe in locally sourced produce, we're still not acquainted as much as these people who are so dependent on agriculture. And so when they have a picture of locusts, they have a picture of agricultural barrenness, Something that we probably haven't seen or experienced here before. And so you imagine a picture where a swarm of locusts have completely destroyed your source of food. Gone. Now let's look a little bit more closely at verse 1 and the series of events leading up to this destruction. You notice that God was the one forming the locusts. And he was forming the locusts after the king's mowings, meaning after the king's share was harvested. So this was the second crop that began to sprout because the king's harvest was the one that sprouted first. And so within a year, there were two crops that sprouted, and the first crop went to the king. Now before you and I even touch the income that we earn from our work, who gets dibs on our first crop? Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam. You and I have to pay taxes to Uncle Sam. Except back then, there wasn't Uncle Sam. It was King Sam. Okay, so King Sam. King Sam got his share of his taxes through the crops because, you know, they didn't have George Washington's or anything like that. So he got it through food. And so that was their way of providing taxes for the state. And so the king would then use these crops to pay his nobility, to pay his military. And so that's how he paid everyone. Then everyone else got fed through the second crop. 
So first crop is gone. They can't touch that stuff unless you're nobility or military. And so second crop is where, all right, we, this is where our food source comes from. This is what we depend on. So when the second crop began to sprout, there was this measure of joy, happiness, security, as food for their survival was beginning to show itself. Now in Amos's picture, he informs us that the first crop was already taken. The second crop was just beginning to sprout. And just as people were anticipating this food for themselves and their families, God showed Amos swarms of locusts. Locusts, which in verse 2 shows a picture of these extreme bugs stripping the land of any vegetation. If the picture is of locusts that finish eating the grass of the land, then the picture is of death. It's famine. Because if there's no grass, there's no food. If the locusts ate the grass, they ate everything else too. And if there's no grass, there's no food for cows and sheep and goats. And so what do you get? You get famine. There is no milk. There is no meat source. There is nothing. Then comes Amos's prayer. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. Now, who does Amos pray to? Lord God, Adonai Yehovah. And good thing that he prays to Lord God because who is the one forming the locusts in verse 1? Lord God. Same God who was forming this is the same God that he has to petition to and intercede for these people. Why was he forming the locusts? Sin. Sin. It's extremely offensive to God, and he judges sin severely as he is a God of justice. Justice is irrational. It is irrelevant if there is no difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Because justice is in God's character. There is judgment. There is no justice without judgment. God is also a God of mercy. Mercy is irrational. It is irrelevant if God is always nice. Don't you hear that often? You know, we just want God to be nice. The logical and reasonable explanation for the existence of mercy is that we need it. Right? Why do we need it? Because we don't want the wrath of God. So we need mercy. If there is no wrath, then there is no need for mercy. So you don't have mercy if there's no wrath. If God is always nice, if He is never angry, anger toward injustice, towards oppression, towards abuse, then what reasons are there for mercy or grace or long-suffering? There would be no meaning behind those words without the wrath of God, right? God is also a God of grace. If God is never angry, then there's no need for God to be gracious. And there are so many people out there that don't understand the character of God, believing Him to be more like Santa Claus, who's always jolly and nice. And if He isn't, then that's just not a good God. But that's how a good parent, a good employer, a good anyone who is in authority is viewed. That they're not always nice. And the same thing goes for patience. 
There's no way to exercise patience if there isn't a cause for anger or a cause for the patience to be exercised. So you can't have these great characteristics like justice, mercy, grace, patience without some counter so that those characteristics can be exercised. When we get to verse 3, when God relents, it doesn't mean that he is not caring or not concerned with sin. Rather, it is God exhibiting patience. There is a great cause of anger for God as he is just, merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. God formed the locust. He is sovereign over what happens before and after that formation of locusts. And he can release this swarm and he would be justified to do so. Or... He can withhold the judgment and exercise mercy, exercise grace. Now in our lives, it may seem that terrible things may be ahead of us, and it might be poor physical health or poor relationships, financial challenges, and whatever those terrible things may be, we need to understand that those terrible things didn't come out of nowhere. That maybe, perhaps, God formed those locusts. But never forget that God commands those locusts. He's sovereign. He rules them. And because God is sovereign, He has reign over these locusts, those terrible things, and we pray to Him, asking Him to relent. Now let's take a look at the second picture here, verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Now this judgment of fire was not a wildfire or like a forest fire. This fire devoured the great deep. Now this deep is also mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The face of the deep was before God spoke forth earth's creation. Out of the darkness over the face of the deep, God spoke into existence earth and everything living in it. So when we look at verse 4 in Amos, God's mention of a fire that devoured the great deep is much more powerful than any fire that we can imagine. It is the greatest of fires. And so to kind of get more of a picture of this, imagine a nuclear apocalypse where it just cleans out everything. There's no amount of water that can put that fire out. And so this is another picture of complete destruction. And again, Amos prays to God, begging him in verse 5, and then the Lord relented. Now keep in mind that God is not bound by time. His judgment against sin is eternal. His justice is eternal. And God is predictable in His view against sin. He's unchangeable in His stance against sin. So His judgment is an eternal posture against sin. But so is His salvation, which God makes available to anyone who believes in Him. John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Judgment 
justice and salvation, grace. They're both equal parts of God's nature. And sometimes God sends locusts, sends fire on his people because he is just. Which creates this great tension because God is also a God of rescue, of refuge, and grace. And we see this tension throughout the scriptures. And it's not that God is confused or that he's not sure of which way he's going to go at various times. It is this tension that we, with our finite minds, that we get the opportunity to grasp justice and to grasp grace. Because without the tension, how do we experience that? How do we experience justice? How do we experience grace? You couldn't. We couldn't. So when we read in verses 3 and 6 that the Lord relented, it's not that God had already had in his mind that he was going to do this, and then he was convinced by Amos that he needed to change his mind. What it is, is, is God showing us his patience, his long-suffering, that he has an enduring love for those who are his children, and he desires to provide for them refuge. That his patience, that his grace, that his long-suffering isn't out there somewhere. That it's not just some far thing away, but it's dynamic and it's present. It's right now. It's available to us right now. And you might ask, how? Through prayer. Praying. Amos prayed. Look at these verses. 2, 3, 5, and 6. I said, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Amos again said this, verse 5, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Mentioned earlier that there's this tension between justice and mercy and, and justice and grace. And it's throughout Scripture. So let's take a look at one of these Scriptures. Genesis chapter 18. This is the story of God and Abraham regarding Sodom. Genesis chapter 18 in verse 23. Abraham drew near to God and said, in other words, he prayed. He said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now it's not that God didn't know that the righteous were amongst the wicked in the same city. He knew. But he lets Abraham continue. He lets Abraham partner with him in this. 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And you guys know how the story goes. And if you don't, there it is. Read Genesis chapter 18. Same thing is happening in Amos. It's not that God didn't know the weakness of his people or that there were some who were righteous amongst the wicked. And while God is sovereign and he can just let justice automatically proceed on his establishment of justice in our universe. But he chooses to reign over the universe in partnership with us. 
where he combines his divine purposes and plans with our partnership, our prayers. And we see how he did this with Abraham and how he did this with Amos. Their intercession is a partnership in mercy and grace with God where his justice is definitely present and his judgment is just. But the thing is, it's not mechanical. God has allowed his character of grace and mercy to spill over to his children who are given the opportunity to partner with him in interceding for grace and mercy. And so this brings us to the power and the mystery of prayer. How we have an active part in sharing God's grace and mercy through prayer. Thank God his justice and his judgment aren't mechanical. We'd all be toast, wouldn't we? Tell a lie, gone. You couldn't even make it out of the womb. You'd be toast. And thank God for people in our lives who had interceded on our behalf. And you look at Amos' heart for his people in verse 2, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And, and Amos appeals to God for mercy. And by the power and the mystery of prayer, things change. Prayer changes things. Wasn't that a bumper sticker or something like that? Your prayers have the power to change things. They're not just there for repentance or thanksgiving or to renew yourself spiritually. All those things, yes. But don't forget that your prayers can actually affect how things turn out in people, in our church, in our city, in our nation. And God invites us to partner with Him in how to change the world. He gives us the power to change the world through prayer. You were chosen to change the world. Imagine the power that you have and the things that won't happen if you don't pray. See, prayer is not just a good spiritual discipline. It's a responsibility to those of us who have a relationship with God. To speak to God on behalf of those who don't have that relationship and to tap into that power of God for those who are in desperate need of His rescue. From leaders of nations to the weakest in our society because without our prayers, they will face the locusts. They will face the fire. And it would be completely justified. You and I make a huge difference in the lives of others through prayer. Let's look at another picture of this impact of prayer in Exodus chapter 17. Starting in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur, I don't know what her name is, it just tells us that it's her, went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Do you notice that? What's that all about? Woo-woo, we're winning. Oh, man. Oh, ah, they're losing. Now jump over to verse 16. A hand upon the throne of God. See, Moses' hands lifted up were symbolic of him interceding for Joshua and his army while he was fighting the Amalekites. Now back to the story in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 12. 
But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now let me ask you something. Whose prayerful hands have you been holding up? Because they're making a difference, but it gets wearisome. And who's holding up your hands? as you pray and you intercede for the world, for people you love, for our church. And you know, I get a lot of critiques and I get a lot of feedback because I speak. And so people feel at liberty to give feedback and critiques of whoever speaks. It's just part of this ministry. But the thing is, I am really thankful for those critiques and that feedback because it helps me get better. I take those things, I pray through it, and if it's a legitimate thing that I need to improve on, I'll work on it. And if it's not, I just toss it. It doesn't work for me. It's not a big thing to me. I can take that. But the thing I'm really curious about is those people that deliver critiques and deliver feedback, if they are holding up my hands or are they busy pulling them down? Before you give a critique, before you give a feedback, would you just pray? Can you just pray for me? Right? Maybe God will change your heart about some things. Maybe he'll convict you more to say something stronger. And give it to that guy. He needs to hear that. So whatever he wants, I'm good with it. Whatever he wants. But I need you to help me hold my hands up. Because this is a weary ministry. And it's really difficult to keep my hands steady for individuals in the church, the church, our city, the nation. It is hard and you make all the difference. You errands and you hers. Right? Your prayers make a difference. Your support makes a difference. Now, whose hands are you holding up and who's holding up your hands? Because some of you have some difficult things going on in your life and you're doing some major intercession there. Who's holding up your hands? Because their prayers make a difference in your life. So we see in Genesis 18, Exodus 17, Amos chapter 7, all our stories of the power and the mystery of prayer. And don't any of you make excuses that your prayers aren't powerful or they're not effective. Because Amos was a shepherd. Lowest of the low in terms of jobs. Right? He was a dresser of sycamore figs. And God relented with the locust. He relented with the fire because of him. Now this third picture. Verse 7, Amos chapter 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. Now for those of you who are not familiar with a plumb line, a plumb line is just a, like a string or a rope or just a line with a weight attached to the end of it to use it as a vertical reference to ensure that the construction is plumb or that the construction is vertical. Otherwise you get the leaning tower of Pisa. Some Italians weren't using the plumb line there. But anyway, that's what the plumb line's used for, right? Straight up, strong. Verse 8, And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Something about God. God is long-suffering. 
but he won't suffer forever. Otherwise, we wouldn't use the term long-suffering. We'll just say God is a suffering God because he will suffer forever. Long-suffering just means that he suffers a long time, but it's not forever. At some point, the patience will run out. Otherwise, it's not patience. Patience has to be able to be run out in order for patience to be practiced. Otherwise, what are you patient for? Right? So God relents, but he won't relent forever. And that's what's happening here in this third picture in verse 8. Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. Now you picture God as the architect, the master architect who designed this wall with this fine, exact, intricate instrument, a plumb line. And he oversaw the construction and all the work that's being done and he judges the work done with the plumb line as the standard. So what is this plumb line? What is this standard? How do we know when something is plumb in relation to God? Well, you look to God himself. You look to the master architect. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so when looking at truth and love and forgiveness, redemption, we look at God. The plumb line is in God himself. Now let's take a look at the plumb line of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Starting in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God is the plumb line for love and redemption. God freed them from slavery. And then where did Moses take them? Mount Sinai in Jordan. From freedom and redemption to Mount Sinai. Now what was at Mount Sinai? The law. First was redemption. Then came marriage. No. First was redemption. And then came the law. Right? The law was given to them so that they would have this framework as to how to live a life consistent with love and character that God's characteristics are. Now realize that God had grace and mercy come before the law. That the God of grace and mercy gave the law after he rescued them out of slavery. So grace and mercy came before the law. When God freed the Israelites from the Egyptians, he didn't tell them that it was a free-for-all. All right, you guys are free now. Just go do whatever you want. You guys are totally free. Do whatever pleases you. Do as you think is right. And just go about doing whatever you are. That's not gracious. That's not merciful. That's not loving. And that's not kind. And you might be thinking, why not? Isn't doing whatever someone wants the best thing? Not if they don't know what to do. I mean, it would be like setting out my kids, right? Eight, six, four, nine months. 
they don't know much. Except my eight-year-old is pretty smart. Actually, she might have them survive. But if you just go do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. So you're set free from Egypt in the middle of the desert. Just go do whatever you want to do. They'll die. There's no food. There's no provision. You can't just go do whatever you want. You can't go wherever you want. God's grace rescued them. And then what did He do in a loving way? He provided them the law, a framework for how they were going to live. This is what you guys need to do to live. And so the same thing is for us today. We've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. And God doesn't just leave it there and just say, okay, now that you've been saved, just free for all. Go. Do whatever you want and go as you please. No, we're given a framework. We're given His Word. We're given the Bible as to how to live our lives. Lives consistent with His character and reflective of His love and His grace and His mercy. The psalmist wrote in Psalms chapter 119, verses 44 through 45, I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. In other words, I'll walk in freedom because I've kept this law continually forever. Because of that, I have freedom. For I have sought your precepts. Now, the plumb line isn't for us to measure against the world. The plumb line is for God's people. Look at verse 8 of Amos chapter 7. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. See, the plumb line is set for His people. And His people are to live according to it. Lastly, verse 9, we're given news of what will happen. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. Why? Because they exploited God's grace. They abused it. They didn't understand God's grace. They thought it was all about religion and putting up these places of worship and the high places, the sanctuaries, when those weren't the places where God's grace was to be found. God's grace was to be found in them. Not in these places, not in these sanctuaries, not in these religious things. And they didn't have it. And the law, they didn't keep it. They just abandoned it. They were good at rituals. They were good at religious practices. Right? Just like our church can be good at religious practices like communion or how many baptisms we have or how many small groups we have and we have all these religious metrics to say we're this. But it could be all done as a shell. Just empty. The spirit of the law was neglected. Continuing on in verse 9, And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now the story of this part of Jeroboam can be found in 2 Kings chapter 14. Now Jeroboam did a lot of things right. He had a very prosperous kingdom, very wealthy, a very active church, right? very active in religion, uh, very politically influential. But when the plumb line was put next to his life, he was way out of place. A summary of Jeroboam's life can be found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, how does this apply to us? Today, we can build a wall. We can build a good church. 
before we moved in this place, this place was totally dilapidated, holes in the ceilings. The rug was red, but really was kind of black and all marked up. The walls were white, but they were all dirty. We did a marvelous job of refurbishing and rebuilding this thing. The thing is, we can also work at building up ourselves. And we can get all the professional help we can get with therapy and a life coach and a spiritual director and mentors and coaches. And we can get all these degrees and get years of experience on how to be better, better at ourselves and reading all the self-help books and getting our friends to help us out and, and getting the feedback from people on how we're doing and how we can build ourselves up. And we continue to build ourselves up and move up the ladder in our jobs and try to be a better husbands and fathers and all these types of things. And we can even have people come up to us and tell us how good our life looks. That your walls look marvelous. Look at your wall. You are a wall of a man. You are wonderful. That we've gone big. That we've made it large in life. And like, look at me. I'm awesome. Look at my wall. But regardless of how much you think you've made it big or how much others tell you that you've made it big, the real test is a simple plumb line, a string with a weight on it that God just holds up next to you. And that standard is God himself. As he holds the plumb line, he's straight, so he holds it. And how do you measure up? Will our lives stand up to that simple test? And we put so much effort into all the things we do, and all God has to do is just bring this little simple tool. That's not a big thing to God to measure us up not a big thing to him at all and that's when we'll be really able to tell if what we've built is straight or not put all this effort to find out you're bent and that's when we'll be able to tell if we've built it on our own or if we've continued to consult with the master architect that we haven't gone too far without him holding up the plumb line and saying you know you got to correct some things if God were to hold up the plumb line against your life, your faith, your relationships, your work, how would it all look? Are your walls on the brink of collapse? And the question isn't about how religious you are. It's about how all the different aspects of your life line up against the plumb line of God. If you're confused about what that plumb line of God is, it's in His Word. You can find His character in His Word. You can find what God is all about in His Word. What are you busy building? And is that going to topple over? God has withheld the locusts and He has withheld the fire, but this is something that He does not withhold. You and I will be held accountable to the plumb line of God's character and His Word. That one we are facing. There's no secret about that one. And we have his plumb line, we have his word, and we can continually go back to see if the lives that we're building up with him, with our master architect, are measuring straight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us that power of prayer to come to you to ask you to relent on judgment. Father, you are just in your judgment and at the same time you are gracious and you're merciful, you're forgiving and you provide refuge. And I ask God that you would give us hearts to continue to intercede for those who need you. 
God, that we wouldn't be building up walls on our own, that we would be looking to you, the plumb line, as to how we're building a life. In Jesus' name, amen.